welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your hosts Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Law and Legend brings you myths and legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told. And we do it in the style of traditional storytelling enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Law and Legend is called The Gates of Dream exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth and the gods and spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, Storyfolk, Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, and Sean Powell. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining Christy, Paul and Sean in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, visit our website and click Support Us. In this first episode, we hear the tale of a young man who was fated to fall in love with the ancient god of the moon. From storyteller Rick Scott and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo and Caleb Hennessy, this is The Dream of Endymion. Well, in ancient days, when the human race was young, the stories told that there was a youth who fell in love with the moon. The moon was called Selene, and Selene was the sibling of Helios and the child of the old gods Hyperion and Fair. And every night, Selene bathed in the silver waters of the ocean before donning their bright cloak, mounting their chariot, and driving their two strong-necked and full-maned horses up into the sky. And then running at full speed, the beams from their crown would strongly wax and wane as they ran their course across the sky, and they carried with them a sweet-sounding horn and a white burning torch. And with their benevolent eyes, they gazed on all the fields of the night, knowing the courses of folk and beasts, and brightening their way by the virtue of their rays. And in the forests that covered the steep climbs of Mount Latmus, there was a youth called Endymion, a prince among the mountain tribes of the first folk, a shepherd and a hunter who always had his cloak slung across his shoulder, a spear balanced in his hand and his hunting hounds about his heels. In the day he hunted wild predators in the deep woods, and at night he slept by his flock on the mountainside. And in this simple life, he was content. Until one night, the 16th anniversary of his birth, he dreamt the moon was riding their silver chariot across the night sky. When they looked down and saw the youth sleeping on the grassy bank, his cloak spread out beneath him, spears resting in the crook of his arms, his pups curled up at his knees. And descending from the sky, Selene knelt down and placed a single kiss upon the youth's handsome brow. When Endymion awoke, his heart ached, and he could think of nothing else except that kiss. And every day Endymion would leave his flocks behind, steal away from his people under the cover of night to chase the steps of the moon divine. And he studied the moon to learn their secrets and their courses, to know their blessings and their wisdom. And in doing so, he began to fall in love with them 
He learned that their name was Selene. He learned of their raven black hair, their pale white shoulders. He learned that as they crossed the sky, they shed rays of pure silver light that brightened the paths of night walkers and blinded the eyes of bad spirits and evil dreams. As his quest deepened, his knowledge of them grew richer than that of any other. And he was the first to chart their paths across the sky, to follow their wax and wane, to name the nights of the red and the blue moon, to learn how their light sank into the herbs and springs and charmed them, to see how their circles of the earth bent the very wheel of fortune to their course, so that by his charts and by his love's reflection in a bowl of water, and Dimian could begin to guess at anyone's future. But though he grew wise in all these things, every glimpse of the moon was far and fleeting, for their orbit was far and long from his station on the mountainside by his flock. Their ghostly pale and pockmarked beauty remained distant and aloof. They would pass across the sky before him, leaving only the bright trails of their moonlight behind them. And Endymion, worn out from the chases of the night, would sink down upon the verge to sleep. Now one night as they passed overhead, Selene swept their gaze across the mountainside and once again, their eyes found the sleeping form of the young shepherd prince lying asleep beside his flocks. And this time when they saw him, their hearts swelled. For though he was human and mortal, it seemed to them in that moment that they had seen no creature more perfect than him. And his face shone with their own reflected radiance. Descending from the sky, they knelt down, and they kissed him again upon his handsome brow. But this time, Endymion's eyes fluttered open at once, and he saw them then in all their glory, their slim white arms, their long black hair, the radiance of their gown, their face stern yet serene, their hands always gentle and sure in their husbandry of their two white horses. This was their secret beauty, seen by no other but him. And as day followed night, followed night, followed day, they who could not take Endymion with them into the heavens, and he who could not leave the mountainside, they ran and they hunted together in the depths of the forest. They sang together. They danced. Endymion, he composed songs that mingled mortal love with divine praise. And they knew as much bliss as mortal or immortal could know. But then one night, Selene descended into the forest. And they found Endymion gazing at the sky with tears streaming down his face. Selene asked him why he was crying. And he said to them, When we are here together, I have no earthly fear or sorrow. But between the time when I lay down to sleep and when I wake, I have such dark and troubling dreams of a life where I am on the world below and you are high in the heavens beyond my reach. And even though I chase you, with the passing of the days and the years, I feel my body growing weaker, my breath growing shorter and the light in my eyes is dimming. I know I will not be able to keep up the chase and that I will die alone in the dark, unable to reach you. Why is it so? What is the meaning 
If these dreams that I dream. And at his words, Selene remembered suddenly that Endymion was mortal. That he would age and weaken and one day die. And their heart was broken by the thought that such pure youth and beauty would soon be worn away by the cares and pains of mortal life. And unable to speak, unable to look at him, Selene fled away. did not return the following night, or the next, or the next. And whichever world he woke in, Endymion's bed was empty. And he rose to search for Selene, in this one and in the next. But always at last he would surrender to despair, sink down to his bed, and wait for the next nightmare to begin. One day as he walked, Endymion was sunk in the thoughts of the dreams of the night before, when he met an old man travelling on the road, who asked him if he had any food to spare. So Endymion invited him to sit by the fire, and he gave a morsel to the gods, and then to the old man he gave the best of the bread, and the honey, and the dried meats which he carried with him. When he was finished, the old man thanked him graciously, and asked him why had he given him, a stranger, the very best of his food. And Endymion answered, for all he knew, a stranger might be some god in disguise. At this the old man laughed, and applauded him for his wisdom. And then he told the youth a story. Did you know, he said, that the human race has been made and unmade five times? It is true, there have been five ages of humanity, and in each one their state has gotten worse than the last. You see, in the beginning, humans and gods, they, they mingle together almost as equals. When the gods on Olympus had won their war against the Titans, they took thick clay and flowing water, and they made the shape of all living things that now fill this earth. There were two titans who served the gods, because they had betrayed their own kind to Zeus in the war. There was Prometheus, who had shown the king of heaven the way to the prison of the Cyclopes, those crafty creatures who forged his great thunderbolts out of gratitude. And there was his brother, Epiphemius. Now, as part of the Titans' new duties, the gods instructed Prometheus and his brother to divide up all of the gifts of the gods of divinity between the different creatures that the gods had made from the clay. Well, Prometheus hung back to consider but his brother Epiphemius did not wait. With reckless enthusiasm, he began to bestow all of the gifts of the gods on these creatures. Wings and feathers to the beasts of the air, scales and flippers to the beasts of the sea, claws and fur to the beasts of the land. But there was one creature whom he left naked and unprepared. The human. Maybe it was out of resentment, because they had something of the image of the gods themselves. They had eyes to see, 
but there was no light of understanding in them. And so they did not build houses, but they crawled into dark caves below the ground, and they dwelt like ants in the earth. They wandered around the earth in confusion like the shapes of dreams do, and when Prometheus saw the humans, so like in appearance to the gods and the titans, yet almost as wretched as his chained brothers and sisters in Tartarus, Prometheus was moved to pity, and he went straight away to the forge of the divine smith, Hesphatius, and took from it a brand, a flame of the heavenly fire, and he took the fire and he blew it in through the human's eyes, where it ignited his heart and his spirit. And the light of understanding began to glow in the coal of his eyes. And after they were filled with this divine radiance, humans and gods, they feasted together in Olympus, feeding on sweet ambrosia, resting in those immortal halls under the heavenly king Zeus, the earth it gave its fruits easily, and there was no need for toil or sweat or competition between the tribes of humanity. But yet, that fire that burned within the human race made them rebellious, unruly, cruel and wicked to each other and to lesser beings. And it was at the feast table that the accord between humans and gods became undone. Because Zeus, wishing to know if the tales of depravity about humanity were true, he came down to us here on earth and he visited the human king, Lycaon, in disguise, in the guise of a traveller. He was seated at his dinner table, but even though by his gravity and energy all there could see that this was some god in disguise, Lycan, he sneered, and he tried to defile the god by serving him the human flesh of one of his victims. Zeus destroyed the house immediately with purging fire, and he transformed that king from man into wolf. Well, after that, the humans were made and remade four times, each time weaker and less divine. Each time they had to be destroyed again for their wickedness. Now, at the final time, it wasn't Zeus and the other gods, but Prometheus himself who took the clay and remade them. He used the soil mixed with the ash of some of his fallen brothers and sisters, the bodies of titans destroyed by the bolts of Zeus's lightning. It's clear he thought of them as his children. The continuance of his race, and perhaps eventually even the doom of Olympus. And though Zeus had since locked the secret of the living fire away in high Olympus, Prometheus... He stole it back. He broke into the vault, and concealing the spark of flame in the thin hollow of a fennel stalk, he went down to earth and brought it back to humanity. Enraged, Zeus would have destroyed them all again. But Prometheus, he, he called a convocation of the gods at Sicyon, which is the place where heaven and earth meet where Zeus first made the laws of this world and of his kingdom, and he allocated the honours and powers to all beings. And Prometheus, by his impassioned speech and by his reason, he laid out the shape of a covenant between God and human, the exchange of life for worship and devotion. After this, gods and humans would never sit and feast together. Zeus said that men could not eat ambrosia, but they'd have to have bread and water harvested from the earth. Men, it was agreed, might also eat the beasts of the earth, but here too, they must give some of it to the gods. The most divine animals, it was agreed, would be divided in sacrifice between a god and his worshippers. 
and it was here, as they made to agree on the rightful portions due to the gods and due to men, that Prometheus played his trick. I will divide the creature, the titan said, but as is only right, dread Zeus, you shall choose your portion. And then Prometheus carved up the great oxen, and he made two portions of its pieces. One portion. He made a pile of the most succulent meat, and yet he made a satchel from the rough hide and the fetid skin of the ox's stomach and entrails, and he stuffed the good meat inside that. The second portion was just a pile of bones, and yet he wrapped them in the bright and glistening strips of fat that looked wet and delicious to the tongue. And then setting them before Zeus, he bid the dread lord choose, and Zeus, he chose the parcel of glistening and fragrant fat. And so it is that when humans sacrifice, they keep all of the meat for themselves, and the gods are satisfied with the smell and the savour of the roasting bones. When the dread lord discovered only the bull's bones inside, his wrath at Prometheus was great and saw the tribes of humanity feasting on the meat, camping below the slopes of Olympus, roasting it and basking in the light of the forbidden fire. His rage was redoubled. He saw that they wished in their hearts to scale up to the heights of the sacred mountain. You rejoice, he said to Prometheus, over what for you and all of humanity to come is really a great misfortune. It is no victory that men will always have a hunger for meat. They will always be as much burned by fire as they shall master it. And see now, I shall fashion another gift for them that entrances and burns them with even greater ecstasy and suffering. And Zeus took his lightning bolt, and with it he cleaved the spirit of every human being in two. At this time there were three kinds of human being, three kinds of people. One had a spirit that was wholly male, and they were made in the image of Helios the sun god. One had a spirit that was wholly female, and they were made in the image of Mother Earth. And the third had a male and a female half to their spirit, and they resembled Selene, the god of the moon. So when Zeus cleaved them in two, they burned to restore themselves to wholeness, and they sought always after the spirit of love to reunite them with their, their missing half. Yet Zeus did not stop there. For he instructed Hesphatus to fashion an Eidolon out of the clouds to resemble a woman, and Athena, she draped her in beautiful clothes. Aphrodite bathed her in ambrosia so that she shone with beauty. Hermes gave her a beautiful tongue that twisted with eloquence and cunning. The charities decked her in jewels and fine gold, and the hours wove fragrant flowers into her hair. And with a grin on his face, Hermes flourished his scepter and declared that the Eidolon should be called Pandora, which meant all-giving. And when this beautiful evil was finished, there were none who could not look upon it without being dazzled by the beauty of its deceitful glamours. Zeus gave her to Epiphemius, who took her eagerly, and he ran away to live with her amongst the humans. And from that day forward, humanity were bewitched by the Adolan, prizing its beauty above all else, even though it was a body of air. 
I lusted to possess it, though it could not answer their true heart's desire to make them whole. Often they thought they beheld their other half when all that was before them really was an idolum. And so some say that Helen was never actually in Troy, but that Paris abducted an idolon, and the war of the Greeks was fought over a body of smoke. Not only this, but Zeus filled a vase with curses and gave it to Pandora, and he warned Epiphemius not to let her open it. <laughs> but of course, Epiphemius thought that there must be something wonderful inside, and so in the end he convinced Pandora to open it, and from the jar escaped the terrible spirits of hunger, old age, envy, rumour, discord and fury, which spread out across the earth and took dominion over it. And from that day forward humanity was forced to sow the earth with sweat, before it brought forth food. And from the jar too came all the cursed spirits of fear and sickness that inhabit the unhappy earth, and who visit you with the fears and the terrors that plague you in your beds at night. Only one thing was left locked underneath the rim of that fateful jar. Blind hope. It was another gift that had been hidden there by Prometheus. By the fragile light of that hope, he taught you how to plough, how to sow, how to reap, how to build, how to cross the wide back of the ocean, how to sing, how to write, how to tell stories, how to dig metal from the earth and forge it anew, how to read the signs of the gods and how to interpret your dreams. So you see, Endymion, all of this, all of your love, all of your dreams, it can be laid at the feet of Prometheus. All of this you learned by the light of his fire, but it is only really because of his theft of it that you have need of it at all. And every blessing that he gained for you it was also a curse. It is on his account that your heart burns with this fire for what is missing, is looking always toward divine beauty so far above your reach, are filled with a hunger that can never be satisfied. It is on his account that humanity is suffered always to dream. For it is not possible to escape the mind of Zeus. But you, young Endymion, the old traveller said, what is it that you dream of? What is your deepest desire? And Endymion sighed, and he answered that he desired nothing more in the world than to be always in the arms of his love, or else that he might be drowned in sleep forever. And he thanked the old man for his story, and they continued to converse of things mortal and divine long into the evening. But as the day's shadow grew, Endymion found his gaze drawn toward the moonless sky. And troubled as he was, he did not see as the sun's rays crept beneath the horizon, how the old man in a moment became light and bodiless to the eye, dissolved into the air. And when Endymion turned back, there was only the cloak's empty folds, like the shed skin of a snake. night, as Endymion lay in fitful sleep, beneath the twisted boughs of his dreaming tree, 
Someone approached through the woods with slight and cautious steps. They paused and watched the rise and fall of his chest, the gentle sobbing of his breath. And then a pair of hands slipped beneath him and lifted the sleeping Endymion into the air. With effortless strength, Selene carried him across the mountain's brow to a place where the rock opened into a secret crevice. Here, Selene sequestered their lover, laying him down on a bed of moss and bracken beneath a softly flowing spring. They saw that he was still perfectly handsome except for a single crease that marred his brow like the ghost of some painful thought or memory. And leaning over him, Selene opened the box that they had obtained from Almighty Zeus. Zeus, who had come to try Endymion's heart and found it worthy. From within, Selene withdrew the gift that crackled and flamed in their hand and which they rested gently on Endymion's brow. The light flowed into him, and the shepherd's body began to glisten with the inner radiance that separates the bodies of mortal and immortal beings. Endymion's brow smoothed, his breath quickened, but his eyes did not open. Instead, Selene looked down on him and smiled, planted a kiss upon his murmuring lips, and slipped out again through the mouth of the cave. They say that Endymion still sleeps beneath the crown of Mount Latmos to this day. Never again has Endymion ever opened his eyes, but he sleeps an ageless sleep in the arms of eternity. And every night since, Selene has returned there to smile on the face and kiss the lips of Endymion, before rising once again into the sky to continue their flight across the boundless night. And you might wonder, if you were to kneel beside him and look at his face, what is Endymion dreaming? Who knows the dreams that Endymion dreams? Some say that in his dreams, Endymion and Selene are always together, in perfect bliss, an ideal love and bound by time that knows no real ending. Others say that though Selene gazes on his face, in his dreams, Endymion is always alone. They are always absent, and he is always searching for them. Or, they say, that as Endymion sleeps, he dreams the dreams of all humanity. Dreaming the world from beginning to end. Dreaming each and every one of our lives. That he is us, and we are him. All of us searching through all the world for that which our heart is missing. So perhaps this, all of this, is just part of a dream. A dream that Endymion is dreaming. Endymion dreams. He dreams of gods and heroes. He dreams of the wine-dark sea. And he dreams of a storm-swept isle, a long-lost sailor, and a queen. A queen who is forever haunted by dreams.
The myth of Endymion comes down to us only in fragments and illusions. As with most Greek myths, there are competing stories and traditions. These fragments say, variously, that Zeus offered Endymion anything he desired and he chose eternal sleep, that Endymion was cursed to eternal sleep by Zeus for lusting after Hera, that Selene loved him and begged Zeus to make him immortal so he would always be with them, or that instead it was Hypnos, the god of sleep, who found Endymion so beautiful, he cast him into immortal sleep, but with his eyes fixed forever open so that the god might gaze into them. Some insist that Endymion and Selene were parents to fifty lunar nymphs called the Meniae, whose number was said to represent the fifty lunar months of the Olympiad, the four years between each Olympic Games. Whether Endymion fathered them before or after his eternal sleep began, the sources do not say. Endymion is variously described as a king, a hunter, a shepherd, an astronomer or an astrologer in ancient sources. In art and sculpture, he is often depicted sleeping with a cloak, spear and hunting hounds. He was said to hail from the region of Caria, in Anatolia, within modern Turkey, where we find the mountains of Latmos, today the Beşparmak Mountains. Endymion's resting place, or tomb, was identified with a cave near the ancient town of Heraclea. The region was inhabited by the Carians before it was settled by the Ionian and Doric tribes of Greece, and Endymion's myth may have been a translation of native Carian mythology. His legend is sometimes confused with another Endymion from Olympia in southern Greece, who decided his three sons should run a race to decide who inherited his kingdom. One who won the race, one who stayed at home, and the third who left home angry when he lost. Selene was a titan, one of the second generation of primal gods overthrown by the Olympians in Greek mythology. Their distinctive iconography includes the bearing of a flaming torch, a silver diadem with a lunar crescent, their white robes, and a chariot drawn by white horses. The story of the titan Selene may have retained its prominence due to the fact that Artemis, the Olympian goddess associated with the moon, was fiercely virginal, so that the myth of Endymion could not be absorbed into her own mythos. In Renaissance revivals of classic mythology, Selene was often replaced with Diana, the Roman goddess who absorbed the Greek cult of Artemis. Our telling also embraces an aspect of Selene which is sometimes lost, the idea that the moon and its divinity was sometimes conceived of as sharing both masculine and feminine characteristics. Most sources and scholarship depict Selene as a feminine deity. However, in Plato's Symposium, the character of Aristophanes the poet characterizes the sun as masculine, the earth as feminine, and the moon as both masculine and feminine. The Orphic hymns address Selene with feminine pronouns, but in Thomas Taylor's translation, she is declared female and male. Followed by the phrase, with borrowed rays you shine, this may have been based on the idea that she reflected the light of the masculine sun. There is also a history of non-binary symbolism and performance in cultic practices related to Selene and Artemis and the Greeks were apparently aware of an Egyptian divinity of the moon who was represented as intersex. In this telling of the tale, therefore, we have embraced a non-binary identity for Selene. Endymion's search for knowledge is iconic of one of ancient Greece's most notable legacies in Western society, the intellectual inquiry of philosophy and natural science. Interestingly, the individuals often credited as the first philosophers and scientists lived and taught in the city of Miletus, which was only a few miles from the mountains of Latmos. This episode also features the disguised figure of Zeus, retelling the story of Prometheus, his stewardship of the human race, and his battle of wits with the king of the Olympian gods. Prometheus was another titan god, who remained free after the war with the titans, and played a decisive role in the creation of man. The story of Prometheus's role in creating man, and stealing for him the gift of fire, appears early in the work of Hesiod, which described the birth of the gods and their relationship with human beings. The later works of the Athenian playwright Aeschylus describe how Prometheus defected to the side of Zeus in the Titan War, the Titanomachy, and gave us not only fire, but also blind hope and all the arts of civilization.
In the myth of Endymion, sleep and dreams play a symbolic role in the relationship between the mortal and the divine. In art and literature, Endymion's love of the moon is often portrayed as a kind of unrequited passion, which symbolises humanity's obsession with the unattainable. At the outset, Endymion is literally moonstruck, in love with something far beyond his reach and outside of his natural sphere. The identity of the moon shifts between the moon as a stellar body and its personification in the figure of a deity like Diana or Selene. It's a force of nature, of the divine itself, something that is more than merely human. And so Endymion's love for Selene stands as a symbol of human longing for the divine in general, with the ideas of beauty and life and love as eternal forces or states of being. Selene's love for Endymion too is disturbed by the knowledge that his own particular vigour and beauty is ephemeral, and so they seek to have him elevated to the sphere of the gods. The fact that this can only be accomplished in this story, at least, if he is also fated to sleep eternally, might be taken as a symbol of the impossibility of bringing the mortal and the immortal realms together, at least in this life. In some religions, humanity is granted eternal life, but in Greek mythology, at least, immortality was not in the nature of human beings, unless granted as an extraordinary gift of the gods. There are many other legends and folk tales about individuals who either fall in love with the moon, try to chase it, or bring it down to earth. And these traditions are probably influenced by the origins of mythemes that relate love and lovesickness with the influence of the moon. Endymion's love and the observation of the moon has also given rise to the notion that he was the first astronomer or astrologer, the two not always being distinct in the past. And Selene is connected to many other mythological figures associated with the moon in mythology, as a celestial body that stood between the realms of heaven and earth, which rose and fell above and below the sky, which appeared and disappeared in distinct phases. The moon was often thought of as a transitional force, a crossing or a doorway between different realms like the heavens and the underworld. Gods linked to the moon were thus described as similarly transitional. The gods are paths, crossroads or the underworld. And as a potential bridge for power from these realms, the moon and its gods played a significant role in the occult and witchcraft. And so, in the Greek mythos, Hikate and Kirke, goddesses of witchcraft and sorcery, were strongly associated with the moon, as were sorcerers and witches in general, like Medea and the Thessalian witches. Now, the mytheme of the Endymion story is of the sleep of Endymion, but many have taken the natural step of wondering about his dreams. The poet John Keats wrote a poetic epic of Endymion, in which the shepherd searched for a beautiful and mysterious goddess whom he first glimpsed in a dream. Some paintings of the myth are titled Endymion's Dream, and Keats's story extends the metaphor of love and longing into the realm of dreams, which are another natural metaphor for the chase after things which are fantastical, fleeting, ephemeral, always out of reach. The stories of Endymion and Prometheus are combined in this tale because they're both symbolic of the relationship between the immortal gods and mortal humanity. The battle of wits between Zeus and Prometheus pits the rebellious and cunning intelligence of the Titan, who symbolised the primal and elemental powers of nature against the power of the new Olympian king, Zeus, who symbolised the natural order, embodied in the workings of fate and civilised law and custom. Prometheus is a constant threat to Zeus, and it seems he becomes a patron to humanity 
partly out of sympathy for their lowly, servile condition, but also from a desire to challenge Zeus's sovereignty. In this way, Prometheus's patronage and his gift of fire, which ignites the arts and crafts of human civilization, represents the primal, aspirational spirit that is part of human nature, which can inspire us to greatness, but also to hubris. Prometheus's attempted deception of Zeus confers gifts on us, but it also inspires the god to retaliate. In the original story of the creation of Pandora, the first woman, women are misogynistically described as parasites who consume everything that men produce, but whom they rely on to produce children and to create their patrimony. The fateful jar that she carries pours out curses on the earth which force men to work to bring food from the land and introduces sickness and ill health into the world. The original source for this story is Hesiod, and scholars believe it's likely to be an intentional corruption and perversion of an earlier myth about a patron goddess who provided for humankind a female alternative or counterpart to Prometheus, if you will. The evidence for this is in the name itself. Pandora means gift giver. And archaeology has uncovered references to Pandora in the context of fertility cults and worship rituals. So Hesiod's tale about Pandora is probably a deliberate rewriting of a myth of a female benefactor to fit his own belief that women were the source of all evil in the world. Now this is good for us, because at every stage of writing the show, we're presented with alternative versions of Greek myths and stories, and it's nice to have an alternative to simply repeating Hesiod's misogyny. This is especially important due to the current style of our storytelling. A lot of storytellers use fourth wall breaks to address the audience. This is a good way of distancing themselves from elements of a story that they don't agree with, where the values clash with our own. But the particular kind of immersive storytelling experience that we're crafting in the podcast at the moment means that we tend to limit or omit these moments. That's a stylistic choice, and in the future we may change that. But that means that we have to pay particular attention to those moments in the stories where old ideas clash with our own values and affect our ability to enjoy or relate to the story as a listener. Our version of the Pandora myth subverts it by borrowing an idea that's used elsewhere by the Greek playwright Euripides. Euripides wrote a play about Helen of Troy in which the real Helen was abducted by the gods to a faraway island and an illusory shade or phantom called an idolon in Greek, was put in her place. This illusory version of Helen was the object for Paris's lust and the whole of the Trojan War. It's a great critique of the idea of Helen. It's a great critique of the idea of Helen as a misogynistic construct, as a combination of shallow ideas about female desirability, but also sexist ideas about their infirmity, their lustfulness and wickedness. And instead, it lays the blame in a much more appropriate place. It is not Helen, but men's desire to possess and to control this idea of the most desirable woman in the world, which leads to the hubris and the destruction of the Trojan Wars. So by recasting the Pandora myth using the concept of an idolon, we subvert, we subvert Hesiod's own retelling of the myth. As well as recasting the Pandora myth, we looked to Plato's alternative story about the origins of love for a story that embraced broader concepts of gender, identity and sexuality than those found in Hesiod. Plato's Symposium is a philosophical dialogue which explores the nature of love. It's remarkable on the one hand for basing its discussion of love primarily around homosexuality, and also for including a partly comedic account of the origins of love and the concept of soulmates. You see, within the dialogue, the character of the comedian Aristophanes explains that human beings were once creatures with eight limbs and two heads. 
some of these hybrid creatures were made of two male halves, some of two female halves, and some were androgynous, made of a male and female half. Zeus split these creatures in two because, as so often in these myths, the human beings were hubristic and sought to climb up to Mount Olympus and challenge the gods. The result of that was that these humans were deprived of one half of their being, leaving them to forever search for and chase after their missing halves, with the implication that homosexual, lesbian and heterosexual love arose from these original three kinds of being. In mythology and early philosophy, the element of fire was often materially identified with the divine power or spirit that was the life of the human soul and mind. Fragments from early philosophers referred to dreams as fires of the human soul kindled within the body at night. While Plato believed that vision itself was explained by a subtle stream of fire which poured out of the eyes, causing dreams when that fire was shut inside the body at night. And as the fire that Prometheus gives allows for craft and invention, cooking, light in the darkness, metalwork, so it stands as a symbol of imagination, the human capacity to dream, in the sense of imagining, planning, creating. It seems significant that in Aeschylus, Prometheus may be responsible for the gift of blind hope left in Pandora's jar. Blind perhaps because we don't know our fates, as the gods supposedly do, but that means that we're able to hope and strive for the best. In this way, the story of Endymion's dreams and Prometheus's fire go together perfectly as emblems of human nature, our hopes, our dreams, and our creativity, our perpetual striving after impossible dreams, even if they will always be just out of reach. Next week, follow us to a distant, storm-swept island where a dream-haunted queen must defend her home from the ravages of pirates and thieves and save her son from an untimely death. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream, Episode 1, The Dream of Endymion. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Rick Scott. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org. Full audio credits are available at www.loreandlegend.co.uk. For news about upcoming episodes and more information about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. All of those links are on the website. Thank you for listening, story folk. <laughs>